Please turn to Revelation chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided for you, that's on page 965. The alternative way to find it, besides looking at page numbers, is to go to the very last page of the Bible. I suppose there might be an index or something like that there, but uh, then flip forward a few pages until you find chapter 2. It's the last book of the Bible. This book called Revelation was written last. That's probably one of the reasons it's at the very end of our Bible, but it's especially there at the end because it tells the end of the story that the Bible has been telling from the very beginning. Uh, Most of our biblical books are actually not in chronological order of the order in which they were written, but uh, in this case, this book is simply telling us where human history is going to end or what the end of the story looks like, in other words. So we're studying this book so that we know what the end of the story looks like. We're also studying it so that we know how to live right now. We don't need to be terribly concerned about what happens hundreds or thousands of years in the future. We need to be terribly concerned about how we faithfully follow Jesus in this place, in this area, geographically speaking. The original readers who were Christians in a place called Asia Minor, which we would just know as Turkey, as we saw in Sunday school today, Uh, these Christians were in distress. And John, the apostle, was writing this letter. It's a prophetic letter, an apocalyptic letter, something that's revealing uh, reality to these people, but in the form of a letter. And he was writing it because following Jesus in that place back then was really hard. And they needed to hear certain truths in order to live faithfully, follow Jesus faithfully in that place part of life. That's because following him means being loyal to him even when it's hard, even when it's costly, even when you might lose a relationship or a job or social clout or even your life. And if you're, uh, I just want to ask you right now, if you're here and you're just kind of thinking through this loyalty to Jesus idea, I want to ask you, To what extent are you willing to go to be faithful to Jesus? And perhaps if you're not a Christian, maybe this sounds like too much to sign up for. Like, I would rather be a Christian because it helps my marriage or because it helps me politically or it gives me like emotional or mental health improvements. And maybe you didn't know that following Jesus would mean signing up for sacrifice, signing up possibly for persecution. But following Jesus is costly, and I'll tell you the reason we as Christians are willing to follow Jesus, even when it's costly, is because we're making the same sacrifice that Jesus made for us. Now, obviously, his sacrifice was for our atonement, for the cleansing of our sins. Our sacrifice is simply just a life of gratitude to Jesus. But we're willing to follow him, to sacrifice for him, because we know from the Bible itself and even from this passage itself that we're looking at in Revelation 2 and 3, that this life is not all there is. We aren't here to preserve our lives as long as humanly possible, no matter what. We're here to follow Jesus, no matter what. And that's why we're willing to sacrifice, if need be, for him. What our passage today tells us about the people who received this letter a couple thousand years ago, those people weren't all the same. They weren't even in all the same cities. And they weren't facing all the same problems. So each of these seven sections, these seven letters to real churches living a couple thousand years ago, they each had their own unique problems. And that means that they all had their own unique 
truth that they needed to latch onto about who Jesus was. And so in a moment here, I'm going to uh, read straight through Revelation 2 and 3. And if you're like me at all, you probably will check out at some point while I'm reading this passage. Because it's easy for me to check out when someone's reading a very long passage. So instead of just saying, let me read this text and we'll pick back up, you can pay attention again in a few minutes when I start explaining this passage or telling a story. Instead of that, I would just say, as I read this, I would encourage you to look for a couple different patterns. One uh, would be what like, what is the structure of this passage? Because they all follow basically the same structure. There's seven letters, but they all start in the same way and end in the same way. So look for that. Maybe that'll help you follow along these next few minutes. But also try and identify what is the problem that Jesus himself is addressing and what is the solution that he's providing for each of these seven churches. And if you're kind of asking those questions of what the problems are that necessitated each of these letters in the first place, maybe that will help you as I uh, read aloud to, to help you follow along. So please follow along now as I read from Revelation chapters 2 and 3 straight through. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. But also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, 
The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say... I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star, and he who, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But realizing that you are wretched, 
pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. About eight years ago, Clarissa and I were buying our uh, first home, the first home that we were owning, the only home we owned, actually, <laughs> in Anniston, Alabama. We had been looking for a home for a few months and had walked through several, and this one we finally really liked. We made an offer on it, and it was accepted. So we got the, uh, it was a foreclosure, and so that made us a little bit nervous. So we got our inspection scheduled, and that made us a little bit nervous because we think, okay, so no one's been living here for a couple of years. Who knows what kinds of problems they're going to find in this place? And the day came for the inspection, and several friends had recommended this particular inspector to us, and they had told us one thing. Everyone who knew him told us one thing. He's very thorough. If there's a problem, he's going to find it, which is what you want if you're going to buy a foreclosure. So that's why we went with that guy. But I tell you, it was kind of nerve-wracking, sitting there knowing he was walking through every inch of that house, climbing through the attic, looking through the ductwork and every other part of the house, looking for problems. I will tell you, it's one thing to have a human inspector climbing around your house looking for problems. It's a little more scary to know that Jesus himself is looking through the church, his people, here and now and there and then in this passage, looking for how that church is doing, whether they're doing what they were called to do in the first place. Are you living as the church is supposed to live? Are you believing what the church is supposed to believe? Are you holding on the way that a church is supposed to hold on to the truth, hold on to the end? Jesus himself is the one in this passage who is inspecting and evaluating his church, and he has every right to do that. He bought the church. He bought people with his own blood. So he gets to decide how and when to evaluate his people. But what this passage reveals is that every church must become aware of its unique dangers and respond appropriately. And maybe right away when I say that every church needs to do this, you think, well, you know what? I don't really consider myself to be part of a church or the church, so this doesn't really matter for me. And I would say, well, yes, it does. I even thought about toying with the wording. I kept the every church part because of the fact that it's listing out seven seven specific churches in church history, but every Christian needs to evaluate or become aware of the unique dangers facing them. And so if you're wanting to check out because I'm wording it as every church, go ahead and just scratch out that word church in your notes and write in the word Christian and the problem is solved. Every Christian must become aware of its unique dangers and respond appropriately. Now perhaps you notice as we read together that some of the dangers that churches face are internal. They come from the inside. Perhaps it's being lackadaisical about sin or living immorally. And of course then, the opposite is also true. 
Some dangers that churches face come from the outside, from false teachers or from persecution. But regardless of what those dangers are, how should churches respond? And really, more specifically, how should this church, living in the 21st century, in this culture, respond? And if you're visiting with us today, maybe you're thinking, all right, now we're going to get the good stuff. Like, I've been thinking about coming to this church for a while, I've been visiting here for several months, and now I get to actually find out what the real truth is about this church. And I would just say, no, not really. Sorry. What you see is what you get, first of all. That's what I would say. Is, you know, just look around. This is what our church is. There's not really anything juicy to share, for good or ill. But regardless of what dangers are encroaching on our church right now, which dangers are crawling through the hallways, which dangers are crouching outside our door, I want to tell you that the right way to respond to any danger in any church, the right way to respond is provided in this passage, the passage we just read for several minutes. So, what are the right ways to respond to dangers? And I will tell you, it was hard to know how to structure this sermon because it's long, because there's seven clearly identifiable parts. Even if your Bible doesn't have headings in it, which, again, I would personally probably just kind of ignore those headings by and large. Here, they're very useful to the church in such and such a place. That's fine. It's an accurate heading. But by and large, you can ignore those headings. But even if you don't have headings in your Bible, it just runs straight down through. That's great. You could still tell there are seven clearly identifiable parts of this passage. But by combining and summarizing for the sake of time today, what I've done is I've identified four ways that churches should respond to spiritual dangers facing the church. So four ways to respond to danger. So regardless of what danger our churches face, we must first of all acknowledge Christ as Lord of the church. Acknowledge Christ as Lord of the church. Perhaps as I read, you notice that there are elements, unique elements to some, but generally speaking, there are common elements to each of these seven letters. So you have which church is being addressed here. Uh, Perhaps here you notice, first of all, the one in Ephesus. And then what uh, John does is he goes in order, really what Jesus does. So if you want to look at this as like a very small map of a very small section of Turkey, you have Ephesus and then the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one. All, like basically kind of like a loop. And that's what uh, the, the order that Jesus is going in, and it would have made sense to the people who were reading this letter. Okay, this is a letter intended for all the churches, and we all need to pay close attention to it, and it's, Jesus is going right down through from one to the next. So that you have this idea of which church is being addressed. You have some truth about Jesus that relates to the passage we studied in chapter 1 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that each church specifically needed to hear. So there's elements of Jesus' character or Jesus' work that each church needed to apply to their own unique situation. Typically, you have some commendation or some things that you can kind of pat yourself on the back about in each church. So commendation. Then you have a rebuke or a threat. Uh, Typically, the rebuke or a call to repent and what will happen if you don't repent was an element there. There's also a promise of what will happen if you do what's right, if you respond appropriately to the danger facing your church, and then a call to hear. So these, uh, you know, the way I have it broken down here, there's seven elements. Some people combine those into four. Some people stretch them out into eight. All I'm saying is there are unique elements, but for the most part, there are common elements from one to the next. But even as we read through those, you notice that each one started 
that the Christ is the one, started with the fact that Christ is the one who is addressing these churches. Again, real churches in real time, but representing all churches across church history. And it says, it's the words of him who holds the seven stars. Going back to chapter 1, that means that he's the one who is responsible for the churches and responsible for the angels that oversee the churches from an eternal, heavenly perspective. That's what I think I was talking about, is real angels in heaven. But Jesus is the one who is the Lord of the church. He's the one who holds those churches in his hands. Going back to chapter 1, he's the one walking between the lampstands, evaluating the churches, looking carefully at what they're believing and how they're living and how they're doing facing suffering. And so what we see in this passage as we acknowledge Christ as Lord of the church is that he is everything the church needs. He is everything the church needs. Where am I getting that from? Typically, it's from the first verse or the second verse of each of these seven sections. So again, here in chapter 2, verse 1, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven lampstands. In verse 8, he's, the, he's speaking, he's giving the words of the first and the last, the one from the very beginning of all time and the one from the very end, the one who knows all things in between, the one who died and came to life. And so what he's doing is he's taking his perfect nature and his perfect knowledge and he's saying this is what this particular church needs right now he is everything the church needs he also knows everything about the church notice for instance in verse 9 of chapter 2 so what i would encourage you to do is have your bible there and just be ready to flip a lot if you're taking notes i'll try and give clear addresses as some people call them references as others call them and uh, you can look them up more later or you can just listen whatever is the best for your listening style i would just rather you get the message than have a bunch of numbers written on your notes if you're taking notes but he knows everything about the church for instance in chapter 2 verse 9 i know your tribulation and your poverty or in verse 13 of chapter 2 i know where you dwell you dwell in a hard place it's where satan's throne is it sounds like this is a very dark spiritual uh, spiritually speaking dark place or in chapter 2 verse 19 i know your works your love your faith your service your patient endurance there's lots of good things jesus knows it all though that means he knows everything about you as well does that scare you does it make you feel good are there some things you wish he didn't know maybe you could like erase and kind of cross out so that he doesn't know them but if he knows everything and he says i still love you what does that tell you about this jesus but if he knows everything surely there's some things you don't want other people to know right like you're not planning to stand up in front of our congregation and say this is what i did this week that i'm really not proud of Jesus knows those things too. So how should you respond to those things? And the answer is the same, regardless of whether you call yourself a Christian or a faithful Christian or not a Christian. I hope that if you call yourself a Christian, you don't consider yourself an unfaithful Christian and are just okay with that. But regardless of where you are, the right response is always the same. Repent and believe. To repent means to turn away, to turn around, to leave behind the ways that you are rebelling against God, your maker. And to believe simply means to believe that he will forgive you, that he is not going to hold this over your head forever. That's good news. That's what we call the gospel. 
That we can have our sins forgiven not because our performance is so good, but because our faith in Jesus is there. The fact that Jesus is Lord of the church means that he defines our mission. You know, different churches will define their mission, will write out their mission statement in different ways, just like different organizations of all kinds write out their mission statement. But we don't get to choose what our mission statement is. We can decide how exactly we're going to word it, but it should be the same from one church to the next. Every church should be about making disciples. That's what the church was built to do. We don't get to make up our mission. It's one thing for Southwest Airlines to say we're here to be the low-fare airline or however they're going to define their mission statement. That's fine. You're an airline. Do what you want to do. But it's not fine for us. We're a church. We do what Jesus tells us to do and he specifically tells us to make disciples, to help people follow him. That's what a disciple is. It's a follower of Jesus. And we do that by proclaiming the truth for the glory of Christ. That's what we're all about here at Brainerd. So acknowledge that Christ is Lord of the church. Secondly, we must celebrate evidence of the Lord's grace, of the the good ways that the Lord is working in our lives. And maybe you notice that almost all of these churches, there are some exceptions, but almost all of these churches, Jesus himself says, here's some good things that I noticed when I was walking around inspecting how the churches are doing. There are good things. There are elements to commend. So for instance, in chapter 3, verse 4, he commends right living. He says there, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white. To soil your garments there would mean to like walk through, maybe we could say run through a muddy pile, or a a muddy um, puddle. So maybe, for instance, a couple weeks ago, my son Andrew, who learned how to ride a pedal bike this summer and loves life because of it, he was riding with me, and uh, as we were driving down the bike path, you know, we drove over a puddle, and it sent water straight up his back, and his, the whole back of his body was wet with like one very narrow strip of water up his back. His garments had been soiled. So how did these people soil their garments? Well by living the way non-Christians live, by imbibing the kind of entertainment that the world throws at us. But Jesus commends that, they, that there are some people who hadn't soiled their garments. There are people who had lived holy lives, even in a place like Sardis. He says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 8. I know your works. I know you have but little power in verse 8. So it sounds like these people are doubting their ability to walk in God's ways. So like, we're not as strong as Christians there. We're not as, we don't have as big of a budget or as big of a building as that church over there. And Jesus says, no, you're doing well. I know you think you have little power, but I'm the one empowering you. So the Lord commends right living. He also commends right theology. Right theology isn't the only thing that matters in a church. But let's not deceive ourselves. It matters. There's a church not far from here that has had to shutter its doors recently. When I was on their website a few years ago, I distinctly remember reading, you can believe whatever you well please and be a part of our church. We don't have one particular set of beliefs. You can just come and believe whatever you want. That church has shuttered its doors. Again, there are lots of faithful churches that believed right doctrine that have also had to shutter their doors. So I'm not saying there's like an apples-to-apples comparison here. 
But I am simply saying, what you believe matters. And that's why we do things like read lengthy passages of Scripture in a worship service. Like sing songs that every single one of them teaches good theology. Like affirm creeds or confessions or catechisms or statements of faith in general. But here Jesus commends right theology in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. I know your works. Let me tell you the good things in Ephesus. Your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and you saw through it. You didn't believe their lie. They weren't actually apostles. They were liars. This is kind of like what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 10. You can call them super apostles all you want, he says. But they aren't apostles at all. And the Christians in Ephesus saw through that and Jesus pats them on the back and says, you found them to be false. I know you're bearing up for my namesake. I know you haven't grown weary, which sounds a lot like the passage that Clayton chose from Isaiah 41, or 40 today. 40-31. You haven't grown weary. You've kept doing the right thing. So he commends right theology. He also commends endurance in multiple passages, but for instance, chapter 2, verse 19, I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. I know that you keep putting one foot in front of the other while you're walking in my ways, even though you're getting shot at from every side because people think you're so foolish for following that Jesus guy who died. You realize he was crucified, don't you? Was maybe what people would say. So Jesus commends their endurance. So we as God's people also want to celebrate evidences of the Lord's grace. And I want to encourage you to do that for one another. So maybe you look around our church and you say, you know what, I've noticed that person has really been suffering, but they're not looking like the kind of person who would be suffering. They have a smile on their face, they keep showing up, and maybe you could write a note to a person like that. There's all kinds of ways you could do that for one another, but I want to encourage you to celebrate evidences of the Lord's grace in one another's lives. So for a church to respond to the dangers that comes at it, the church should acknowledge Christ as Lord of the church, Second, celebrate evidences of the Lord's grace. And third, identify and repent of patterns of sin. Do you notice that in this passage as well? That the Lord takes evidences and patterns of sin and calls them what they are. Doesn't sugarcoat it, doesn't whitewash it. He says, just then the church we just talked about a second ago, Ephesus. There are lots of good things I can tell about what you're doing. You're believing right doctrine all over the place. But let me tell you what you're not doing. And what he says to that church in Ephesus is, you kind of stink at love, like really badly. Like you used to love really well. And now what you have is right doctrine and stone-cold hearts. You don't care about me anymore, Jesus is saying. You don't care about the truth or you, you care about the truth, but you don't care about the Lord. So he, he confronts this idea of lacking love. He confronts the sin of tolerating false worship in chapter 2, verse 20. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, which is a reference to 1 Kings, the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament. And here I think you could probably put air quotes around Jezebel. I don't think it's referring to one particular person. It's referring to anyone who is tempting you to follow after the ways of the world rather than God. It says this person calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. So maybe a non-Christian would just say, yeah, that person's a sex worker. 
Or yeah, that person is an idol builder. Like he literally works in a shop fashioning wooden or stone or bronze statues for people to worship. And from an outsider, from a, from a worldly perspective, yeah, that's his job. From a Christian perspective, we would say, no, what that person's doing is fighting against truth, fighting against the Lord. We have to pull the curtains back and see what's going on behind what's in front of our eyes naturally. And this book of Revelation does that over and over and over again for us. Helps us see that there's another level to reality. That someone who's engaging in creating pornography, for instance, that person is fitting in this category of the woman Jezebel who is seducing people to practice sexual immorality. And I will say, we have great compassion for people who are stuck in what the world calls sex work, people who are stuck as being pornographic actors because that's all they can do and they don't know how to get out of it. We need to have compassion for those people. One of our core values as a church is defending the rights of the defenseless. So we pray for opportunities to get engaged in helping people with that kind of work. But what I'm saying is we need to see truth for what it is when you identify and repent of patterns of sin. So don't tolerate false worship. In chapter 3, verse 15, what the Lord confronts there is being self-sufficient. And he describes this in ways that maybe you've heard this passage uh, about the, the lukewarm person here. And this is where some cultural context really helps us understand this passage. So this place called Laodicea, this city, did not have its own source of water in the first century. I don't know about today. don't know what that place is like today. But they didn't have their own source of water. So they got water from two other places. One was about 10 miles away. And they had really good cold water, which is delicious to drink on a hot day like today. There's another place about six miles away that had really nice hot water, which is really good medicinally. These hot springs. And the water got to Laodicea in one way, through viaducts or aqueducts underground that would cause the water to run toward Laodicea. But if it's ten miles away and it's really cold ten miles away, what's it going to be by the time it gets to Laodicea? Lukewarm. If it's really hot six miles away, by the time it gets to Laodicea, it's going to be lukewarm. And there were chemicals or you know, various kinds of growth perhaps in the aqueducts that made the water, by the time it get there, nasty. And you would want to spit it out of your mouth where you spit out sour milk or lots of other things that just don't taste good. And you spew it out. And that's what Jesus wants to do because of this church is disgusting. I want to spit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm like the water in your town. So this passage isn't saying, I would rather have you be you know, far from God. The cold and the hot have nothing to do with spiritual temperature. It's using a cultural reality to say, you are worthless. Just like lukewarm water on a hot summer day is worthless. So the Lord is condemning this self-sufficiency. So while Jesus is saying, you're worthless. They're looking at themselves and patting themselves on the back saying, look at us. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. That's your perspective. Let me tell you what's really true. You are wretched, pitiable, 
poor, blind, and naked. So what do you need to do? You need to repent of your self-sufficiency. That's what Jesus is telling the Christians in Laodicea. And instead of thinking you have everything you need, you need to come to me to get true medicine, true eye salve, true clothes, true resources. Just like in Isaiah 55 where the Lord calls his people and says, come unto me and I will give you milk and bread without money and without cost. You'll have everything you need. And maybe you're here and you're spiritually hungry. We here at Brainerd want to call you to turn to Jesus as the one who, will, who invites you to come unto him and he will give you rest and let him satisfy your every need. So we think of churches, ways that churches should respond. I'm taking seven sections and combining them into one, and I'm looking at my notes and saying, well, throw that page away and throw that page away like for sake of time. So I'm just going to cut right through here. We've seen uh, three ways so far that churches should respond to dangers that come at us both internally and externally. We must acknowledge Christ as Lord of the church, celebrate evidences of the Lord's grace, identify and repent of patterns of sin, and now forth. We must hold fast to the Lord while suffering. He sustains sufferers. Do you notice that in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10? He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. People are saying you're poor, but actually you're rich because your faith is in me. So you actually are rich. I know that you're enduring the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They're people who say they worship God, but actually they're the opposite. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Again, this is a reminder, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. These are people who are empowered by the evil one, motivated by the evil one. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. What's that ten days mean? It's a symbolic way of saying for a specific amount of time. Not a super long time. Like a week and a half is not that long of a time. Probably longer than a week and a half in reality, in real time. Revelation uses lots of numbers in symbolic ways. This is probably one of those times, but it's not for like years and years. It's for a short amount of time, a fixed amount of time, a time that the Lord knows. Reminding us the Lord already knows everything about what the church is facing. You're going to be tested for 10 days. You'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. The Lord is commending them and urging them to hold fast to the Lord himself. So he sustains sufferers and he rewards sufferers. And what I could do here, for the sake of time I won't, but what I could do here is take you to the end of each of these seven sections. And what the Lord does is makes a promise. Now catch this, because if you want to see how Revelation is kind of tied together, he makes a promise here in chapters 2 and 3 at the end of each section. Then he expands on it and builds on it and clarifies what that promise is in chapters 19, 20, 21, and 22. They're all like, like a balloon that gets inflated at the back end of Revelation. So here, I'm going to give you the tree of life. I don't think that's mentioned again until you get to chapter 22, maybe chapter 21. But it's expanded on it. It's ex- explained and it's beautiful. I'm going to make you like a temple. Well, that's expanded on in chapter 21 where it says that the, in heaven there is no temple because you're with God himself. Why would you need to go to a place to worship God when you're already there? 
So the Lord rewards sufferers. He says, I'll give you, those of you who conquer, those of you who hold fast to the end, who don't turn back in the face of suffering, I'll give you one gift after another. I'll give you what he says is a white stone, and I'll give you authority, and I'll give you a crown, which is symbolizing eternal life. And those who have that crown, those who hold fast to the end, won't suffer a second death. Again, I think I mentioned this in my prayer. Those who are born once, die twice. Those who are born twice, die once. So that should make you ask, how do I get that second life so I don't have to have that second death? And it is by faith in Christ alone. Hold fast to the Lord while suffering. Hold fast to the Lord because it's not your works that save you. Last weekend I was in an Uber down in the city and uh, with a couple of friends, and we were asking the Uber driver about himself a little bit. Do you go to church anywhere? What do you believe? What's your church teach you? Things like this. And in the course of all that, he said, well, I mean, really, I think I'm saved because I try really hard to keep the golden rule. And I said, look, man, I think that's good and all. Like, I'm not saying the golden rule's bad. Jesus taught it. But I'll tell you this. I'm a pastor of a church and I don't keep the golden rule toward my own wife. And I love her more than anyone in the world. No offense to all of you wonderful people and my children. I love my wife more than anyone and I don't keep the golden rule toward her. So I cannot put my hope and confidence in my performance, in my keeping the golden rule. My hope is in Jesus who kept it perfectly. And I said, look, if that's not what you're hearing in your church, which it sounded like it wasn't, I said, you need to find another church where that is. Thankfully, I was with another pastor whose church was like a mile from there. So that helps. But I'm just saying, we need to keep hearing the truth. We need to keep telling the truth that our hope is in Christ. And that's what motivates us to hold fast to the Lord while suffering. I told you about that house inspection in 2015. When we sold our house to move here in 2020, guess who showed up as the same inspector? The exact same guy showed up to the house to inspect. And I don't know if he realized that he had inspected that house before. I assume he probably did as soon as he started walking around. But guess what? We hadn't made a lot of the, rec- the changes that he had recommended when we bought it because they didn't really affect us if there was that one little problem in the attic or whatever. But when we're the ones responsible for selling that house, which means making the changes that he recommends, we were kind of nervous. We were sitting around the corner with binoculars watching him climb up on our roof because he was going to inspect and we weren't sure what he was going to find. We know the evil one hates healthy churches because healthy churches tell the truth while Satan's a deceiver. Healthy churches make people want to hate sin while Satan's trying to make you love sin. But Jesus knows all those things because he's inspecting, he's evaluating, and we trust his evaluation. And he tells us how to be a healthy church, what every church, what every Christian needs. Whatever form those snipers might take from the evil one to try and gun down our church, this passage has told us how to respond to the dangers that face us. Whether they're facing us now or in the near future or the distant future, every church must become aware and every Christian must become aware 
of its unique dangers and respond appropriately. May the Lord give us grace to walk in his ways. Our Father, we give you thanks today for being the first and the last, for being the one who has the sword of truth in his mouth, for being the one who gives the morning star and the tree of life and the white stone and the hidden manna, for being the one who holds the seven stars and who will grant good gifts to live in the paradise of God. Lord, we want to be your people faithfully. We want to show you that we are faithful to you because we know you have your eye on us as your people. We also want to show the world that we are your people So give us grace to root out sin, to identify it, and hold fast to you in suffering. In Christ's name, amen.